Welcome to the PA Books Podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This is PA Books, featuring authors of books about Pennsylvania and its people. This week, Julie Winch discusses her book, A Gentleman of Color, The Life of James Fortin. Julie Winch, author of A Gentleman of Color, The Life of James Fortin. You say in, uh, let's see, page 77 of the book, you say, trying to put virtually any aspect of James Fortin's business career into perspective is like trying to assemble a jigsaw puzzle with many of the most important pieces missing. Uh, what made you want to plow through this and write about him? I guess certainly the, the business career, and I must admit I started off more interested in his work as a reformer and abolitionist, but I realized it was his business career that financed this, and I said I've got to understand more about how this guy made his money and invested his money. And in order to do that, because the business papers were just destroyed, I imagine that after his death when the business was sold, the family kept personal letters, but business papers, who needed a 20-year-old receipt? It probably just went on the fire. And it was a case of going through tax records, deeds, putting together a little piece here, a little piece there, and trying to assemble some picture of his business career. What was his business? He was a sailmaker. Um, when? He really starts operating his own sail loft in Philadelphia in 1798. He's been working as a journeyman sailmaker, an apprentice, and a foreman in another man's loft, the man who eventually uh, makes over the business to him. Been doing that since uh, 1786. But 1798, he really takes over the loft and he runs it as a very successful enterprise. And he's running it until just a few months before his death. He dies in 1842. And the last few months of his life, his, his health is definitely failing. So by about mid-1841, it's really his sons who are running it. But he takes the money from the sail loft, and he knows the wisdom of diversifying your investments. So he, very early on in his career, he's buying up real estate. He'll buy up a lot, and he'll have a house built on that lot. Then he'll rent it out. Or he'll buy a house and the ground and he'll rent that out. Uh, he's lending money at interest, which was very common actually for businessmen at a time when the banking structure was not what we know it as today. And getting a loan often involved, you want to develop some aspect of your business enterprise, you go see a couple of other businessmen, you ask them for a loan, you guarantee them 6% interest, they're happy, you're happy. So it was possible during those years for a free black man to be a successful businessman yes, at the same time? Yes. Uh, I would say, though, that his situation is an extraordinary one. Had he not uh, developed a skill as a child, largely because his father was also a skilled sailmaker, so Fortin is learning the trade pretty much as soon as he can walk and talk. He's learning to do some of the basics around the sail loft and then graduating bit by bit to you know, the, the uh, greater refinements of the trade. And then he does find, after his father's death, after the Revolutionary War, this white sailmaker who'd been a friend of his father's, who recognizes in this young man real talent. 
and is willing to foster that talent and promote him and actually put him in a position where he is the foreman of the sail loft and he is giving white workers their orders. Unusual at the time? Very unusual and the sailmaker, uh, the boss, this man Robert Bridges, indicates to the white workers that if they don't like that, they don't want to take orders from an African-American man. This is his chosen foreman. They can look elsewhere for employment. What was know, I'm sorry. What was involved in sail making at the time? How it is a highly was complex trade, and this I had not appreciated till I tried it myself. Uh, it involves far more than just sewing canvas, but even that is difficult because you're talking about needles five, six inches long that have to be forced through several layers of canvas. And the canvas can be extremely coarse, particularly uh, the types of canvas that we used for the mainsails of a vessel. You've really got to force the needle through. You've got to be able to do this quickly, accurately. And then when you get to the greater refinements of the trade, you've got to know how to measure for sails, how to calculate in the seams, how to calculate in the, um, the allowances around the side of the sail, how the sail is going to give. So it's not a case simply of being quick with your hands and your eyes. You've got to have a knowledge of mathematics. You tried this yourself? I have tried this. It is hard work. Where do you go to try I sail making? I went to a couple of sail lofts, uh, one in this country at Mystic Seaport and one in Britain uh, at Chatham, which is now a, a sort of working museum. It's the site of one of the old Royal Naval Dockyards. And here you've got sail makers who are working in the traditional way with canvas and with twine. I mean, the, the modern sailing vessel, you know, the, the little uh, sailboat that you'd see out in the Delaware, this has got synthetic sails and these are uh, made very differently and you use computer programs and uh, you know, you're not having to do some of the things, many of the things that the old sailmakers had to do. But this, this is rough work to do. I just don't have the strength in my wrist to really be able to force the needle through the canvas. How big were the sails that they made? Oh, they could cover, um, it's estimated that the canvas for a fully rigged uh, three-masted vessel, you're talking about canvas that would cover a couple of football fields. And some of the larger sails would be very, very unwieldy to handle. I mean, many feet wide, many feet long, and you're crawling around, uh, sewing this piece to that, having to strengthen the sails in different ways. I mean, this is, this is not a trade for someone who is not a very meticulous person and a person who's got a real eye for you know, mathematics and for draftsmanship. What's more involved than just cutting out a piece and folding uh, the seams over you and know, sewing this is up the like, edges? As, as most people do, when I was a kid, I'd draw the pictures of, of sails and you know, it looked like a sheet just tacked up there mm -hmm. on a mast. Uh, each sail, even the smallest sails, are made up of several pieces of fabric because the canvas comes in bolts 24 inches wide. Obviously, that's not wide enough even for your smallest sail. So each piece of canvas is cut as a panel and then it's sewn to another piece of canvas. And as I said, you have to factor in the amounts for the seams. You have to factor in how the sail is going to give when it's actually at sea and it's got the wind in it. It's wet. It's heavy. I mean, this, this is an extremely complex job. Now, James Fortin was from a free black family. Yes. How did they come to be free? 
Well, I'd love to know exactly how they came to be free. Uh, on his father's side, it was his grandfather who got his freedom, but all we know is that he got his freedom at some point. How it was achieved is a mystery. Was there still slavery in Pennsylvania oh, at the yes. time? Oh, yes. And in fact, there would be slavery in Pennsylvania right through James Fortin's lifetime. Admittedly, by the time he died, there weren't that many Pennsylvanians who were still held in slavery. The state passed a law in 1780 that said all the children born to slave women after, uh, I think it was March 1st, 1780, would be freed at age 28. But of course, that didn't help you if you were born before that deadline. Technically, you would remain a slave for the rest of your life. And there were various moves to try to grandfather in these men and women. And certainly many slaveholders just made arrangements with their slaves or said it's, it's just not profitable for me anymore, especially when there are so many free black people that if my slave runs away, he or she can just merge with that population. But there were certainly masters and mistresses who clung on to their human property as long as the law allowed them to. What kind of jobs would slaves do in Philadelphia? In Philadelphia, virtually every kind of labor. Um, domestic labor, they would work in the taverns, um, women were serving food, they were preparing the food, uh, men were working in the stables, uh, men were working on the wharfs. I mean, the maritime aspect of Philadelphia, black and white, free and slave, really did have to work together on the wharves, loading and unloading vessels, um, making sails, making... Uh, yards and yards of cordage, all the rope that was used on the vessels, building the vessels themselves. I mean, this, this was really a bustling scene. It was an interracial scene, and it was a scene where people of many different uh, situations in life labored together, the free, the slave. So free blacks and slaves would just intermingle during, oh, yeah. during yeah. business and whites, day? yeah. Now, I want to ask you about one aspect of yes. James Fortin's life when he uh, shipped out on a, basically a pirate ship. Ah, uh, well, see, the privateers would not consider themselves pirates. <laughs> These were raiders that had a license. They had a license from the state or the continental government, um, and they would go out, they would attack enemy shipping. Of course, from the British point of view, since the British didn't recognize the new American government or these independent state governments, these guys were pirates. So they have that dual situation to their own minds. They're licensed raiders. This was during the Revolutionary this War? This is during the Revolutionary War. You know, to the British point of view, these, these guys are bad news. How did he get a job like that? Um, frankly, if you were the captain of a privateer, you were an equal opportunity employer for one reason only, and that was that you needed all the able-bodied men and boys you could get. The more men you had on board, the better position you were in, because you were going to capture enemy vessels. So with each vessel you capture, you're not going to take each one back into port. You're not going to cut short your crews. You're going to send a detachment of men once the vessel's surrendered and say, all right, you dozen men, you take the vessel back into port. It gets auctioned off there. We'll settle up the prize money when the cruise is over. So you need all these extra people so that you're not going to risk saying, I'd love to take that prize, but I don't have a prize crew to put on board. Now, uh, he, he was on a ship with, uh, James Fortin was on a ship with Stephen Decatur. Who yes, but this is Decatur Senior. This is not the more famous Stephen Decatur Junior. Ah, uh, Junior was the one who said, my country right or wrong? Uh, yes, and Decatur is uh, 
the younger Decatur is the one who dies in a duel. The older Decatur um, is sort of lost in the shuffle because his son is you know, Mr. Personality. So what was, uh, what was James Fortin's job on the ship? He's a powder boy, which means that he is to run about uh, serving a, a gun crew uh, while the men are loading and firing the gun. He's running about with the charges of gunpowder, getting them from the shot locker, scouring across the deck, and you know, just keeping them supplied. And this, this was a very hazardous job because snipers on attacking vessels would, would go for movement. So here you've got these young boys running about and they make very good targets. Who kept track of all this that you were able to find records of, of this privateer or well, pirate ship? It, it came about in several ways. I mean, he did refer to this again and again in speeches to people and in letters, you know, his service on a privateer. So I was able, once I had the name of the privateer, to get some information about the vessel and its captain. And then, ironically, it wasn't American records that provided the rest of the information. It was British records. I went over to London to the public record office, was able to get into the Admiralty records. And thanks to Fortin's uh, memoirs, I mean, insofar as we're not really talking about uh, you know, published story of my life, but we're talking about the things he did tell people. Uh, we knew the names of the two vessels that captured his. So I was able to find the captain's logs and they described the conflict, they described the, the clash. And I was actually able to find the name of the vessel that James Fortin was subsequently held prisoner on for seven months. And I actually got his prison number and I was able to see where he was transferred from one ship to another. He was taken prisoner? He was taken prisoner um, in a clash, well actually his second voyage as a privateer. First voyage, great success, they captured all sorts of enemy vessels including one that was on a special mission and actually through capturing that vessel they helped bring about the final British surrender because it was a vessel that was carrying important secret dispatches. But then on the second cruise First day out, the captain has miscalculated, and two warships, you know, the, the day dawns, and these two warships, much closer than Decatur had reason to believe. He knew that there were English vessels out there, because this is well before radar, and suddenly they're there, you know, within, certainly within sight, and one of them just moves in. It's bigger, it's better armed. Uh, he attempts to outrun it with Fortin and the rest of the crew just trying to put on as much sail as they can. But after about seven hours of zigzagging through the waters, Decatur has no option but to surrender. So the British captain is able to send on a prize crew. It's really, uh, you know, he's in the Tables position that Decatur would love to have been in. Um, the British captain sends over uh, longboats, he gets the Americans off, gets them on his own ship. They're now his prisoners. And Fortin at this point is terrified because he has reason to believe the black prisoners, whatever their previous status, are gonna be shipped off by the British and sold into slavery in Barbados. What evidence did he have that he was free? Uh, he knew he was free. Well, he um, knew I it, mean, but, he, but he, he had no people? paper evidence at this point. It was merely that, uh, he knew his parents were free. He knew his grandfather was free. And this was a small enough city of Philadelphia. 
that people knew one another. I mean, of course, you were in danger if you got outside the city, but in the city itself, certainly at the time he's born, you're talking about a few thousand people in a city that extended five or six blocks along the Delaware and maybe three blocks back from east to west. So by sight and by reputation, his freedom was established. And when he was on the ship and taken prisoner, when he was on the he... ship, of course, it's it's up for grabs. I mean, he is British captain is not going to say, uh, you know, well, I I understand you. I'll take free. your word. Yes, for I it. take yeah. your word is good enough. Uh, but what saves Fortin is that the captain takes a liking to him. The British captain. captain? The British captain is is stuck. He's got his two sons on board, and this this was very common for young boys to go to sea to train for a career in the Royal Navy. And he's got one son who's about Fortin's own age. That guy's okay. I mean, this is about his second or third cruise. He's a midshipman. He's got plenty to do. But the younger brother is 12 years old. He's, this is his first cruise. He's bored. Um, he's probably being something of a nuisance. He's on board, um, described as his father's servant. He's got a lot of free time on his hands. This is a battleship. And you can just imagine this kid getting in the way. And the captain decides that he's got to get somebody to watch his son. But he can't take one of the older sailors off to do this. So he picks on the most likely looking person who's closest to his son in age and looks responsible. That happens to be James Fortin. And it, ironically, this friendship develops between the two boys. I mean, you would have thought that the English kid is probably, I'm not going to be told what to do by some American prisoner. But they solidify their friendship over a game of marbles. And Fortin is apparently a very skilled marbles player. How old is he at the He's time? He's just turned 15. And he's such a good marbles player that the English boy calls his father's attention to it. And I, I doubt that the captain was that concerned about marbles, but he's obviously taken with the fact that these two have struck up a friendship. When it's time for him to send his prisoners off to a prison hulk, uh, he makes an offer to Fortin and says, you know, if you want to come to England uh, as my son's companion, I will see that you get an education, you'll be schooled with him. Uh, the family is a, an influential one in the Navy. They're a relatively well-to-do family. They offer, essentially, Fortin will be their protege. Fortin, it makes it very clear, he never thinks that they're trying to trick him into slavery, that they'll get him to England and you know, he'll not be free to return. He, he takes this at face value. This is a genuine offer of friendship and protection. And you would think that he would say, that's great, sure, I'll, I'll go. He says, I cannot do it. That I am a prisoner, as he says, a prisoner for the liberties of my country. The irony being, of course, that most black men and women certainly did not enjoy liberties. And he could have said, I don't have much to gain from supporting the American cause. You say in the book that he always considered himself to be a patriot. He does, he does, and he makes much of this. I mean, he, he doesn't want a pension, for instance. Uh, later on in life, when certain politicians say to him they, they know about his wartime heroism, and he does, after he rejects this offer, uh, the British captain has no option but to send him 
off to a prison hulk where he endures seven quite horrific months. I mean, he, he almost dies. So he really had sacrificed for the patriot cause. And he's determined that that will be recognized, not because he wants money, but he wants to be recognized as an American citizen. And when you know politicians say, well, you, you should put in for a pension for your wartime service, he points out, I don't want the money. I want my due. I want to be accorded the rights of a citizen. And of course, he never will be. How did he make his way back to Philadelphia? He makes his way back to Philadelphia. He does the seven months on the, uh, the old Jersey prison ship, was this, this just sort of floating hulk. Um, at the end of seven months, uh, at this point in the war, Cornwallis has surrendered at Yorktown. So the Americans have a lot of British prisoners, and they're able to exchange them for American prisoners in British hands. So Fortin and a bunch of the others from the prison ship are just rowed ashore, and they're told, all right, you're free. Rowed oh, ashore in America? They are, they're in New York Harbor, which is where this prison ship is, is located, because obviously New York is under British control. So they're just rowed ashore, dumped in New York, and told, OK, go home. Well, he's in a pretty bad state. He's lost most of his hair as a result of scurvy. He's got no shoes. His clothes are probably threadbare. And he's just sent on his way. He walks barefoot as far as Trenton. And in Trenton, uh, the citizens apparently took pity on him and some of the other prisoners, gave them food, and found them shoes. Probably didn't fit very well, but you know, ill-fitting shoes were better than no shoes at all. Uh, he makes his way back to Philadelphia, where his mother has just given him up for dead. She knows the vessel's been captured. She's heard that, uh, in fact, his fate is that he's been shot by a sniper. So she is not expecting to ever see her son again. And his father had died by this His point. father had died when he was uh, age seven. So it's really his mother and his older sister. And here he is. He treks home. and. You know, for, for them, it really is that he's come back from the dead. So he went into the sail-making business then? Um, he, I mean, ironically, he, he stays around in Philadelphia for the remaining months of the war. And we're by now talking about the summer of, of 1782. What he does in that period between the end, you know, his, his return to Philadelphia, the very end of the war, we don't know. I suspect with the elements of the sailmaker's trade that he already has, he's probably finding work in a sail loft, at least doing some basic sewing. But then the opportunity comes, peace has broken out, and he decides to sign on as a merchant seaman. Uh, his sister's new husband is a sailor, and off they go to London. And the, uh, the brother-in-law very quickly comes back with his pay. You know, he's obviously been looking to get uh, you know, his, his wages from a, a voyage that's probably th three months, four months there and back, so that he can come back, he and his new wife can get a home, there's, you know, there's a little money to put a house together. James Fortin stays in England. And I would love to find out that he had turned up to the British captain and, and his son and said, hi, remember me, James from the warship. And of course, if one were to make a movie of the book, that's exactly how <laughs> you, know, you would play this, this scene of reconciliation. 
Unfortunately, there is no evidence that he ever saw them again. Uh, he seems just to want a year to himself. Um, I mean, he's, he's been the man of the house for the better part of a decade since his father's death. Now he's got this brother-in-law. Um, his mother and his sister have this, this sort of male protector. And is it a case that he says, well, I now get some time for myself? Or is it, you know, just a young man wants to see a little more of the world? But he stays in London for about a year. Then he goes back to Philadelphia. And that's where Robert Bridges, the white sailmaker, takes him on and will train him in all those refinements of the trade and eventually uh, make over the business to him. You say in the book that he was a good sailmaker because he was a sailor. I think because of the fact that he'd been to sea, yeah. There was, there was no substitute for knowing how sails worked. And uh, I think that the sail plan in the book gives some indication of how complex sail making and sailing was at this period of time. You also have this picture, which is Philadelphia and uh, what, uh, what is the address? It's, it's the Arch, Arch Street, Street Wharf, yeah. And it is a, a really bustling scene. It's a very complex scene. And uh, what probably doesn't come over on TV, but does if you actually look at the illustration, is that there are black and white figures on the wharf. Uh, there are people working together. And Fortin, uh, when he's running his own sail loft, is very concerned to hire both black and white in the sail loft. He doesn't take over the sail loft and immediately give all the white workers their walking papers and just hire a, a bunch of relatives in. He keeps anyone who is a good, careful worker and accepts that he is the boss. And the white workers were willing to work for a black boss? The people who are reluctant in the sail loft, first of all, are the journeymen. Uh, less because they dislike taking orders from a black man. The apprentices are perfectly happy. He's the one training them. They know his skill. But the journeymen seem to be a bit afraid that he's not going to get very much business. If he doesn't get much business, they're not going to get paid. And it's the retired owner of the sail loft who comes in who gives them a sort of uh, you know, talking to about how good the new boss is gives them an indication that there are plenty of orders coming in and that they will be paid. And there are reports that his white workers do stay with him. Uh, one in particular stays with him 35 years. And then he does take on more black workers. He takes on some of his relatives. Uh, his sister's husband dies, uh, so he is left really to help her family. And he takes on her three sons. He trains them. Uh, he takes on some other relatives. But he also takes on uh, men in the African-American community who are not related to him, but seem to want to master a skilled trade. He realizes in the society having a skilled trade puts you on a whole different level from the unskilled laborer. What kind of a boss was he? He is very much a law and order boss. Uh, he does not tolerate all sorts of things in the workplace, the two-hour lunch break at the local tavern, for a variety of reasons. First of all, obviously, a man who has spent two hours in the tavern is not going to come back and do accurate work in the afternoon. And, and as I mentioned earlier, sailmaking demands a really keen eye and a steady hand. So you know, if he catches anyone who is the worse for drink, out they go. 
But beyond that is this sense of he doesn't drink. He thinks that is, this is morally reprehensible. And if you violate this moral code, then you're not going to keep working for him. Um, a couple of his workers uh, get women pregnant as a result of extramarital affairs. When they are summoned by the guardians of the poor and they are expected to pay so much uh, you know, to support the woman and the child, it was common practice for a man in that situation to ask his boss to guarantee payment. You know, you had to come up with a couple of people who would stand surety for your bond. Um, these men were wise enough not to ask Mr. Fortin to bail them out because he, he would have shown them the door. I mean, this, this was not to be tolerated. Now, the business, what was it called? Uh, it's, it's just called James Fortin and Company. Eventually, it will be James Fortin and Sons when his two older sons come into the business. And it was a going concern when he took it over? It's a going concern when he takes it over. Uh, by the time of his death, uh, it, is, it is clinging on, but I would say that its problems have less to do with, with Fortin than with what's going on in the United States. This is, this is the aftermath of the Panic of 1837, when all sorts of businesses were going broke. He's got money that he's lent at interest. Some of the people he's lent to cannot repay. Uh, he's supplied sales for ship owners who've gone broke. And so, you know, you can't get blood out of a stone. He's got these promissory notes. He's got these uh, scraps of paper, which, of course, are now worthless. And it's no surprise that within two years of his death, the business has gone into the ground. I mean, first of all, the business climate does take quite some time to improve. And secondly, I suspect uh, his sons were not the kind of scrappy, feisty, first-generation business persons that, that James Fortin had been. But he ran the business successfully for he 40 years? He ran it successfully for the better part of four decades. How did he learn to be a businessman? I mean, he learned to be a he sailor by, or a, a sailmaker yeah. by being an apprentice, but Common the business Common sense, side. I suspect, and watching the world around him and learning from the pieces of information that Robert Bridges would retail to him and that various of the sailmakers and merchants would just talk about. He read the newspapers also. He knew that you bought low, you sold high. He knew that you didn't put all your eggs in one basket. You diversified. You did go into real estate. You did go into money lending. Just don't overemphasize one part of your business because if that's troubled, you know, the business fails. Just you know, keep the money moving. Don't let money sit idle. This is one of his big things. Just don't let it sit. Get it out there where it will earn, if not a spectacular rate of interest. Uh, and he would probably have known that if something looked too good to be true, it probably was. Uh, but just you know, keep that 6% interest coming in. What kind of education did he have? He had two years of formal education. His mother had managed to send him, after his father's death, to the African school which was a school established in Philadelphia by Quakers. And um, he learned there, even though he probably was not able to attend school full time, I suspect after his father's death, you know, here is his mother left to support herself and her two children, that she's at least having to send him out part of the day to pick up whatever casual work he can. But he learns to read, he learns to write, and he gets a basic knowledge 
of mathematics and probably how to cast accounts. You know, I mean, the Quakers were business focused, and this seems to have been one of the things they emphasized basic accountancy as well as just the three R's. It's got a good grounding. I want to ask you about yourself for a little yes. bit. You've been on this program before. Yes. This is your fourth book, you yes. said. Uh, what are they? First book was called Philadelphia's Black Elite Activism, Accommodation, and the Struggle for Autonomy, 1787 to 1848. And it really looks at two generations of African American leaders in Philadelphia and how one functions as a leader in a society where you're denied access to the ballot box, as African Americans were. And it was doing that first book, which was actually my doctoral dissertation, was where I came across James Fortin and said, there's got to be a biography of him. And I was, I was stunned that no one had done one. And I said, I'm going to start collecting information. One day I'm going to come back and I'm going to write that book. And then uh, after that, I edited a couple of books by African-American writers from the period before the Civil War, focusing on uh, social stratification within the free black community. One of those books was on Philadelphia, and it was written by a young man who was part of uh, James Fortin's social circle. And another was a book on St. Louis that was written by a fascinating man who was as far from James Fortin as one can imagine. This is a sort of wheeler-dealer character who I think James Fortin would have probably kicked out of the door because his argument was, doesn't matter how you make money, you make it however you can. And if whites don't like you, you buy yourself a few politicians. You know, politicians uh, really at one level don't see black and white, they just see that green being flourished about. So you bribe a few politicians and businessmen, you get what you want. Was this person in St. Louis also an African-American? Yes, he was. What is um, your interest in African-American history? I really got interested when I was an undergraduate school in England. Um, what school? I went to Cambridge. And I was interested because uh, the whole issue of race as it was played out in the 19th century in this country was so different from the situation in Britain. And as I got more and more interested in American history, I wanted to know more about those 19th century dimensions of race, particularly the lives of free people. Because you would read in the books about the vast majority of African Americans who were enslaved. You would read about people escaping to the North. And I was always curious, well, what was life like for them in the North? Was it the complete opposite of slavery? Or was it something that was certainly, yes, better than slavery? but not uh, the enjoyment of a situation that was the situation uh, that whites found themselves in. What was that position of being a sort of half person, not a slave, so not somebody's property, but certainly not accorded the full rights and privileges of an American citizen? And you got your doctorate from where? From Bryn Mawr. And mm -hmm. so I was here in the Philadelphia area. Um, started digging around for what would become the dissertation and it wasn't very long into my you know basic ferreting through the materials and archives that I came across little scraps of information about James Fortin. So I realized there was someone out there with a paper trail. It wasn't trying to recreate a life from you know from virtually nothing. 
but it was going to be a case of putting this piece of the puzzle with that piece of the puzzle and saying, oh yeah, this relates to that and maybe I could look somewhere else to see if I can find that little piece of the puzzle that would link this bit to that bit. When, when James Fortin went to England, mm -hmm. and were there many Africans in England at the time? This was yes. the late 1700s? Uh, he would certainly have found a lot of people, especially in the areas he was in. In London, close to the water, close to the Thames, in those dockside parishes. And it was very much a sort of variegated black community because there were Africans from up and down the West African coast. There were West Indians. Uh, some of whom had come over as slaves. Um, I mean, slavery was legal in Britain at the time. For all people think it had been abolished, it, it had not. Uh, planters from the West Indies were very inclined to bring over their body servants, their valets, uh, their cooks, their coachmen. Uh, some of these men and, and the women escaped. Others were held as slaves. Some managed to bargain their way out. There were black loyalists who'd been evacuated with the British at the end of the Revolutionary War and had you know, come to England. And there were black men and women who had been born in Britain. How were blacks treated in England at the time versus the way they were treated in Philadelphia? It was, one has to say it's, it's different. Um, some of the, the judges, for instance, were complaining that black people and one has to really say black rather than African-American because it's, it's such a diverse spectrum here. As I said, it is West Indians, African-Americans, Africans. There were complaints that the mob was a little too friendly with blacks, uh, that runaways were often helped. And what complicated the situation is that uh, slave owners from the islands had bought over disproportionately large numbers of black men and not large numbers of black women. And so you would get these marriages or these long-term unions where a black man is working in a home as a coachman, uh, a white woman is working as a cook. They're on pretty much the same level. They have children together. Sometimes they marry. Sometimes, as I said, this is just a long-term relationship without the sanction of the church. So there was a tendency, certainly among working-class people at this time, to say, well, I'm not turning that guy in. I mean, he's my brother-in-law. Uh, the upper echelons of British society regarded uh, black people with pretty much the same contempt that they regarded the white mob as that sort of lawless element that we want to keep in its place. We don't really want them too close to us, and we're really suspicious of what they might be getting up to. At what point did James Fortin get involved in, in uh, the anti-slavery movement? He's really involved in it from the time we've got his first statements. I mean, there is a tendency, because the coverage is better once you've got William Lloyd Garrison, you've, you've got uh, whites who are uh, sponsoring anti-slavery newspapers. So there is a tendency to think, oh, he's sort of discovering anti-slavery in 1830, 1831. But you read his earliest statements back to the late 1790s, and he's unequivocal in saying, this is an appalling institution, and it has to end. Um, it has to end because it's, it's a moral violation. And he also insists it has to end because this is a new virtuous republic uh, you know, based on freedom and equality, and slavery just should not be permitted. It should not be allowed to continue. Now, there was an organization that you write about called the uh, American Colonization yes. Society. Yes. 
and he was vehemently opposed to that. Well, what did they want to do and why didn't he like them? Well, he starts off marginally interested. Uh, there had been talk, certainly among uh, people of African descent in North America uh, around the time of the revolution and immediately after about going to Africa. For some of these men and women, it was returning to a land where they'd been born. For others, it was simply saying, I, I don't wish to continue on this continent. I want to go back to the ancestral lands. And there were some whites who supported this um, as a sort of missionary endeavor. Uh, Christianized Africans and African Americans could you know, take the word of God back to Africa. Forden didn't have a problem with that. His argument was that any virtuous man or woman should be able to go anywhere in the world that they wanted to go. He becomes concerned, though, uh, when the American Colonization Society gets going. And it's talking about shipping off free people of color to Africa. Um, at first, he's hopeful, because he hopes that this will be the first step. If you establish a colony in Africa, and it's, it's a really vital, successful colony, um, then you get some people to go and then maybe you can persuade slaveholders uh, who are saying, well, you know, I would free my slaves, but I, I don't want them living in my vicinity. You can say, well, if you'd free your 50 slaves, they could go to Africa. Um, they would be happy. You would be happy. But increasingly, he gets to worry that the slaveholders who seem to form uh, a majority of the leadership of the American Colonization Society are talking not about, I'll free my slaves, but we'll get rid of these free black people because they're troublesome. And that will make slave property more secure. And especially when he is told he's the one to lead the exodus. He's not going anywhere. Were there other free blacks who felt other than he felt? Yes, one of his friends, Paul Cuffey, um, who was part West African, part Native American, uh, thought that this was a marvelous idea and thought that this, uh, the men in the American Colonization Society were virtuous and well-intentioned men. Now, Paul Cuffey dies just as this project is really getting going. The American Colonization Society really hoped that Cuffey would lead the exodus. With his death, the focus then turns to Fortin. And this is where uh, the pressure is just too great. It really turns Fortin against it. Um, the leaders of the Colonization Society tell him to go back to Africa. Oh, they really specifically wanted uh, him yes, to Yes, a, a man of wealth, a man who had name recognition. And of course, back to Africa for him. He was born on a third below Walnut in Philadelphia. He pointed out that, yes, his great-grandfather had come from Africa, but you know, he's, he's a Philadelphian. Not that he's ashamed of being of African descent, but he's an American, and you know, his principle that any good man or woman has the right to go wherever they want to go, well, he wants to stay in Philadelphia. This is his choice. And he, as the pressure on him mounts, you should lead this exodus. So he becomes much more intransigent and said, says, this is, this is designed to deceive us. You want us out of the country, not so you can be rid of slavery and all its vestiges, but just so that you can stop us being this living example to slaves that the condition of black people in this country 
can only be that of slavery. You know, you, you think we're inciting them to rebellion. You, you just think our very presence is an incitement and we're staying. Was he active and a, a leader in, in the anti-slavery movement or was he, did he just lend his name to organizations and be a member? He is very active. I mean, by the time the anti-slavery movement becomes more militant and we think of, of William Lloyd Garrison in this context, Fortin is in his 60s. Um, but he does lend more than his name and, and do more than supply money. He hands out a lot of advice to Garrison. I mean, Garrison, with all due respect, is a sloppy businessman. For people who don't know, who yeah. was he? William Lloyd Garrison uh, is uh, a leading figure in, in the white anti-slavery movement as a New Englander born in Newburyport, Massachusetts. And he becomes convinced as a young man uh, that slavery is an abomination. Now, of course, he was not the only white person to feel that way. But instead of taking the tack of some of the more conservative abolitionists, that you, you sort of used the power of reason. Uh, you worked with slaveholders to persuade them that enslaving people was not a nice thing to do. Garrison says it, it has to end, and it has to end immediately. And you just cannot reason with this kind of person you just have to become more militant. Fortin had certainly worked with the more conservative, Quaker-dominated anti-slavery movement in Philadelphia. I mean, he was willing to work with anyone, uh, black or white, whatever their religious persuasion, who believed that slavery was wrong. But he seems to have this real affinity for Garrison. I mean, the two of them, very different in a lot of respects. I mean, most obviously, one is black, one is white. Uh, Garrison is a young man in his 20s, Fortin is in his 60s, uh, lived through many different things, but they seem to have this ideological kinship. And the letters that Fortin writes really do get at more than just, oh, and I'm sending you some money and my best wishes. It's when you're next in Philadelphia, make my home your own. You know, we were so delighted to see you. And of course, for Garrison, this is legitimizing a lot of what he's doing. This isn't, he can't be accused by white slaveholders of saying, well, all right, I'm, I'm against slavery, but I, I don't want to get physically too close to people of color. I mean, Fortin is saying, sit down and, and you know, I welcome you as a brother. And Garrison really responds to that. I want to ask you about, uh, did uh, James Fortin write anything? Was he writing He's, for publications? Yes. Or, or uh, he wrote a lot of letters for the newspapers. Uh, and sometimes he would sign them with his own name. Sometimes he used pen names. And tracking down the pen names is, is putting together part of the puzzle. One of his favorite names is a man of color. Another one is a colored Philadelphian. And occasionally, F. For Fortin. How did you know uh, it was him? Uh, was, because was he, he keeps referring in these letters to those of us who endured seven months of captivity on the old Jersey prison ship. So whenever I'm looking through one of his letters and I think, you know, the prose sounds like Fortin from other things and then I see the Jersey prison ship and say, it's Fortin. But he writes a pamphlet in 1813 called Letters of a Man of Color. And he very obviously intends this for publication and for as wide a circulation as he can achieve. And this is intended uh, to try to stop the Pennsylvania legislature passing a really harsh uh, legislative package that will stop 
uh, any more black people coming into the state will require those already living in the state to carry passes, uh, will punish blacks and whites very differently for the same crimes, and just really solidify the second-class status of African-Americans. Was, was James Fort never allowed to vote? That's a little iffy as to whether he could vote. The state constitution of 1780 was vague. It said one had to be um, of a certain age, have a certain amount of property, and be, quote, a freeman. Well, of course, uh, elements in the black community and some white sympathizers said a freeman, and this was one word, was a free man. In other words, any man who was not a slave. Uh, and so they argued that that meant black men could vote. Mm -hmm. They met the other qualifications. But other whites held that freeman was a, a legal term that only applied to whites. Now, we know that in certain counties, blacks were voting. Uh, in Philadelphia, evidently, they were not. And then in 1838, any ambiguity was absolutely destroyed with the new constitution. New constitution enfranchised more white men by doing away with the property qualifications, but it specifically put the word white in the constitution. But the other side of that is that earlier on, even though he couldn't vote, he, we've got no evidence that he actually turned up to the polls on polling day and was uh, you know, shunted aside. Uh, he tells a white politician, congratulates him in the street, and says, I want you to know on polling day, I walked my white journeyman down to the polls, and they voted for you. And this is before the era of the secret ballot. So you know that he rounded these guys up, and he marched them down to the polling place, and he said, Mr. Samuel Breck is my friend. I pay your wages, and you know what to do. Mm -hmm. And he stood around and presumably watched them and heard them cast their ballot. And I suspect that every one of them knew, you know, if he wanted to continue in Mr. Fortin's employ, that he'd better vote for Samuel Breck. Now, it sounds from your book like race relations worsened over the course of James Fortin's yes. life. Yes, they did. Would, if he were born 30 years or so later, would he have been able to be a successful businessman? No, I suspect he would not. Uh, he would, might well have had the ambition to be a successful businessman. But it was one of his complaints uh, later in life, he would often mention this to Garrison, that white craftsmen would not take on black men as apprentices. So how could they ever get that foot on the first rung? They were more or less relegated to unskilled or at best semi-skilled labor. That wasn't to say that in the 1820s and 30s you didn't find black craftsmen, but on the scale on which Fortin operated, uh, very, very few. In fact, I don't think there was anybody who could compete with him in the African-American community in terms of business success in Philadelphia. How's Later on, one or two figures, but you know that was really, they made their money outside Philadelphia. How successful was he? At the height of his wealth, he was worth $100,000. What I year would that have been? Um, in the uh, early 1830s. As I said, by the time he dies, the economy is in crisis, and uh, the value of his estate is appreciably less. And also, of course, he's, he's raised his children, and 
got them decently settled in life, and that's cost him money. How wealthy would that have made him, having $100,000 um, then? In today's uh, currency, I mean, certainly uh, a millionaire with, with several million to spare. You know, a real estate everywhere, and valuable real estate downtown, uh, as well as, you know, some in outlying areas. So, you know, a millionaire. And you mentioned his family briefly. Yes. Who did he marry? Uh, he marries twice. His first wife um, dies just several months after their marriage. And he waits a decent interval, about 18 months, and then he marries again. And his second wife is a woman of uh, African, Native American, and probably Dutch ancestry, a woman called Charlotte Van Dyne. And she is very definitely healthy. Uh, she outlives him. She bears him nine children and she is buried on what would have been her hundredth birthday. She died just a couple of days before she made it to the century mark. How many children did they have? They had nine children altogether. Um, they had one daughter who died very young, age five, and another daughter who was sickly most of her life, died in her early twenties of tuberculosis. They had another daughter who was the sort of stay-at-home school teacher, housekeeper daughter, and they had two others uh, who married, and then there were four sons, and uh, a family that went in many different directions. How many sons went into the sale-making business? All of them seem to have been trained as sale-makers. It's the oldest, the older two, who are in partnership with Fortin at the time of his death. Now, there's a couple of characters that I want to ask you about who yeah. show up in the book, uh, who cross paths with James Fortin. You mentioned William Lloyd Garrison. Yes. Um, uh, John Greenleaf Whittier. John Greenleaf Whittier, the poet, uh, is part of Fortin's circle. Uh, he's often in Philadelphia because obviously being a Quaker, he's coming to the center of American Quakerism. He visits the home and he writes a, a rather charming poem in praise of James Fortin's daughters, saying that uh, he's pleased to acknowledge them as sisters. Uh, he apparently was, was much liked in the family home. Stephen Gerard? Uh, Stephen Gerard, uh, one or two later accounts of Fortin uh, suggest that he and Stephen Gerard, uh, this, you know, emigre from France, you know, here he is settled in Philadelphia, that they were big friends and that, you know, they, they probably discussed business together. Uh, I was curious about this, especially given what I knew of Gerard's racial views. I couldn't imagine that someone who was hardly sympathetic to black people would have given any business to a black man. But still, there was this suggestion that maybe they, they had been friends. Maybe he had made an exception of Fortin. So I went through Gerard's business records for the fitting out of his vessels. He never employed Fortin mm. at all. And now, maybe he had never employed Robert Bridges, Fortin's uh, you know, patron and the man from whom he took over the business. Maybe it was simply saying, I didn't employ Bridges, so why should I employ his successor? Maybe it was a distaste for employing a skilled black craftsman and putting any business his way. Robert Purvis. Robert Purvis is James Fortin's son-in-law and one of his closest friends. In some ways, almost the son he wished he'd had. The relationship almost seems that of, of father and son. Robert Purvis is the son of uh, an Anglo-Scottish businessman who'd settled in Charleston, South Carolina. 
and the woman that this Anglo-Scottish businessman referred to rather charmingly as my beloved friend. He could not marry her, even if he had chosen to do so under South Carolina law, but he was unwilling to just refer to her as mistress or concubine. She was his beloved friend, his exclusive partner. They had three children together. And uh, actually, James Fort not only found a kindred spirit in Robert Purvis, uh, he found a very rich husband for one of his daughters. So Purvis was also uh, wealthy? Uh, Robert Purvis and his younger brother, well, the, th the three Purvis brothers inherited from their father a quarter of a million dollars. And this was in 1826, so you can imagine what this would translate into today. The oldest of those brothers dies uh, young, unmarried, without children of his own, and so his share of that quarter million goes to his brothers. Fortin manages to get both these brothers as marriage partners for his daughters. So he very neatly gets that quarter of a million dollars. But I should say it seems in the case of the Purvises, certainly Robert, to be based more on uh, this is a great young man and I would love him to marry one of my daughters, not oh, this is a great rich guy and we could do with that money that would help out the family finances. If you, if you travel around Philadelphia yeah. now, is there any evidence that Robert Purvis was, uh, I'm sorry, that James Fortin was here? Very little. There is a marker at the site of his house. Uh, he lived at what was then 92 Lombard Street and is now 336 Lombard. Uh, and there is this marker that indicates that was the site of his house. It, it has his name. It has one or two details which are not very accurate, but it has the date of his birth, the date of his death. There is virtually nothing else to indicate that, that he was here. There's no Fortin Street anywhere? There in is no James Fortin Street. Uh, there is, I mean, the, the church that he attended uh, moved. It's now um, out near St. Joseph's University. The graveyard has moved. Uh, he, literally, his bones were moved when the graveyard was sold. Where are his bones now? I have a horrible feeling they're probably under a supermarket somewhere because the gravesite, the churchyard was sold once and then where the bones were moved to was sold again and the bones were moved again. Um, and so there, there is really nothing. I, I would love to see a street named for him. Even more, I would love to see a US Navy vessel named for him. I mean, here's a guy. If anyone deserves a Navy vessel named for them, it seems to me it should be someone who fought and was actually you know, willing to reject an offer to change sides. We're out of time. This is the book we've been talking about, A Gentleman of Color, The Life of James Fortin. Julie Winch, thanks very much. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN app. Visit PCNTV.com or the App Store for details.